This is your town manager, Alex Torpy, here with another Spotlight episode. In this episode, I sit down in Hanover Town Hall with Sian Bylock, Dartmouth College's 19th president, who was inaugurated in September of this year. Sian and I discuss a range of issues from mental health to housing in Hanover to disagreeing while still having civil conversations, what insights we can gain from cognitive science and psychology about how people interact with each other, and importantly, whether Sion can still beat her daughter in tennis or not. Both Sion and I wanted to make sure to share how essential it is to both of our organizations that we explore new ways to work even more effectively together. Much of this kicked off last year when I and our select board were invited to a reception lunch that was hosted by the college's board of trustees. Although many town and college staff already work well together, I made the case for the value in finding new ways to collaborate at a more senior and big picture level, with me being new to Hanover and Dartmouth expecting a new president soon. On that day, everyone recommitted to this great and important work, and I think we've already made a lot of progress, with so much more to come. Sian and I first had the chance to discuss this when we met in February of this year about the challenges and opportunities in Hanover, at Dartmouth, and in our broader regional community in the Upper Valley. Since then, the college has created a vice president of government and community relations position. It's a great discussion with Emma Wolf a few episodes back. And since then, we've worked together on a range of new programs and issues, such as around economic and community development, especially in our downtown, around housing, transportation, sustainability, student involvement, and more, already with some notable results. Now, growing up in a college town in New Jersey that I later happened to become the mayor of, and being involved in town governance when I was in college, the complex thread of how dynamics work in college towns has always been on my mind. And that complexity, vibrancy, and challenge and opportunity is part of what excites me about the work that we're doing in Hanover. Finding the right way for the town and its many related stakeholders, and the college and its many related stakeholders to work together even and especially when we aren't 100% aligned on how to approach a particular problem, idea, or policy is one of the most important things we can do in Hanover to ensure our community's success and future. So please enjoy this conversation with Sian and look for more in the coming weeks, months, and years about how we're collaborating on issues that matter most to our community. Thank you and enjoy. All right, folks, welcome to another Spotlight episode of Hanover Happenings. We're in town hall here, and I am sitting down with a uh, new president of Dartmouth College, Sian Bailak. Sian, welcome to town hall. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here, Alex. Yeah. So speaking of being here, um, what's it been like transitioning? Let's jump right into Upper Valley life to start. What's it been like coming from the city to Hanover into the Upper Valley? I imagine a bit of a transition for you and some of the staff. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's certainly a transition, but I've really loved it. Um, I love the Upper Valley. I love the nature. The people have been great. And it's nice to be part of a community. Yeah, and it definitely, I think Hanover especially, there's definitely that feeling here and the Upper Valley in general. Um, I think we saw some of that over the summer with some of the crazy flooding that we all saw and people just really band together but also it's not that many people here total but it kind of feels like more almost everyone i've met whether it's folks uh related to dartmouth or in hanover the upper valley more broadly um has been so excited to talk about their experience here mm. and 
um, in addition to, to the people, I'm loving the outdoors and um, everything that comes along with, with living in a region like this. What are some, are there any, is there anything that sort of sticks out in your memory? I'm sure you've met uh, thousands of people over the last, you know, few months. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind of people kind of reflecting on life around here that, I don't know, that's been particularly memorable that you've learned about Hanover or the Upper Valley? Well, everyone has given me tips for where to eat Mm. or what bakeries Mm -hmm. to go to or what brewery, which I always appreciate. Um, But I've loved some of the tips about hiking and where to run and, um, it's it's just it's been really nice that's great um i imagine you're not finding yourself with an overabundance of free time these days <laughs> i don't know if that's that accurate that is true that is true um but i i write in in my book how the body knows its mind about the power of being in nature and about mm. even looking at nature and sometimes when i've had a hard day even walking home and being able to look at out across the hills and um this beautiful environment i know it has a positive impact on my mental health yeah, it definitely um, it definitely does, and it's certainly one of the values of being in areas like this. And I think hoping that you know, even in more urban metropolitan environments, that folks are sort of finding ways to integrate nature more into city planning to try and bring some of that in. We don't have to worry about that here. Um, and now, mental health has been um, one of the uh, it's been one of the issues in the Upper Valley for years from a few different perspectives, and it's something that. Um, I know you've made a priority so far in your administration. Do you want to share a little bit about some of the plans and and what you all are working on there? Yeah, well, first, I think it's important to step back and um, remind people that I'm a psychologist. I've made my career looking at how anxiety and stress affect the brain and body, and uh, I know how important it is that you can't do okay unless you feel okay, unless Mm -hmm. you have the resources and support, um, and that it's okay to fail, to get not get everything right, and but that you need a community and surroundings that are helping you along the way. And um, that's true on an, a campus as well. And so um, I've made health and wellness uh, are my first priority, not just for my students, but for the faculty and staff. Um, I'm really proud of some of the work that we've done. We rolled out um, a strategic plan for student health and wellness this fall, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we're also thinking about how to support the faculty and staff because you can't be okay, the students can't be okay unless they have healthy faculty and staff around them that are supporting them. And so I'm right now looking for a chief health and wellness officer that will sit on my senior team and really think about this across the, the campus and just a couple of small steps we've taken. Um, first, we, for the first time ever, uh, introduced a, a child care stipend for, for faculty and staff uh, at Dartmouth to help support um, child care needs mm-hmm. and, and we're thinking about what it means especially to make sure that our faculty and staff are trained in mental health first aid and other um, areas to help notice and, and support signs of, of stress in our students. Yeah, it's really amazing and I mean I think the perspective that you bring, I know when we first chatted in uh, February of this year, which seems like years ago, I'm sure even more <laughs> to you, um, it was just so interesting, you know, you're coming into obviously, you know, a senior management position in a very large organization, but have this background, um, the psychology and cognitive science background. And um, I imagine that that informs a lot of the way that you approach um, the work that you do, even beyond a policy perspective. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think about how people and organizations interact. And 
I want to get the best out of people, and um, I'm a big believer if you can get the right people at the table talking to each other in a way they feel like they can really push at each other, you get better outcomes. Mm. Um, and that's true for our students, too. I think often health and wellness sits at the, on the side or next to academic excellence. You don't think of it as, as important for excellence. And I firmly believe that we um, have to make sure that our students especially have the tools to support themselves and um, know they don't have to do it all alone, that everyone from time to time should see a counselor, should find support from others' um, needs, and, and that's how you, you get better. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really sort of a meta issue, right? Everything flows from if, if people aren't able to... Um, process new information or talk to somebody else or any if, if none of that if all that is being blocked by something else I feel like that just creates a ton of downstream consequences that we probably I might argue we're seeing throughout our sort of political and civic uh, ecosystem across the country right now yeah I mean I, I agree with you and I think um, you were here when we had all living surgeons mm. general to campus at Dartmouth in September for only the second time in history to have a conversation about mental health. It was um, moderated by Sanjay Gupta of CNN and it was so powerful to mm. have them all in the room together um, and really historic. But I thought it was one of the things that they pushed on is that part of where they see the mental health crisis coming from right now is loneliness. Mm. And even though we're so connected, we don't talk to each other and we don't know how to have conversations right. with each other. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, the current Surgeon General, who said, you know, it's hard to hate people up close. And, right. and that was really meaningful to me, both for how we build community in our campus and, and support our faculty, students, and staff, but how Dartmouth is not just in Hanover, in the Upper Valley, but we're of it, we're part of that community, and we have to work really intentionally to build that community. Yeah, and it's it's so tough, because I, I feel like there's a, many things in people's lives where perhaps there's a feeling of loneliness, if someone can put that fine of a point on it themselves, and they're looking for solutions, but those solutions, which are often through someone's phone, may not actually be helping in the long run. It might feel better in the short term. And so I imagine that, you know, you've seen throughout your years in this field on the higher education side, even in the last 10 years, probably a change in how students use technology and how integral it is to access, for them to access a lot of resources. How do we sort of like, what's the thinking around weighing the pros and cons of technology? When does it help? Like, when does it hurt? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great question. And I don't think I have an easy answer. I think technology can be incredibly isolating hmm. if you're only reading news and social right. media and feeds that just underscore a particular point of view and we know that's happening um, if you're using it to to judge whether you're having more fun than someone else right. or less fun um, but there's and so I think we have to talk to our students about being good consumers of technology that's really important um, I also think there's opportunities for technology to help us so um, we know that when people are find community groups for technology um, that help support them in a particular issue, say they've lost a loved one, those mm. can be really helpful. We also know through what's happening at uh, Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine and, and Dartmouth Health that our, our faculty are building mental health technologies that are helping people 
in the region and, and across the world. So um, Dartmouth, actually our medical school, has the only center of excellence in digital mental health technology mm. in the country. And some of the work they've done, for example, is building apps and supports on phones to help people, say, with opioid addiction um, and, and their ability to continue their recovery. And they've shown really promising outcomes with having that phone-based app in addition to professionals um, augment their, their recovery. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I th- yeah, the, our relationship with our phones is just continuing to evolve and feel like, you know, finding the ways to use them for them to serve our purposes, not the other way around, yeah. is really valuable. Yeah, and we just had a, a faculty panel on this this last week, and I actually wrote an op-ed in, I think, the Washington Post about a month ago on this, that technology, I do think, has been, you know, there is a role to play in some of the mental health problems that we see, but I also think we can think about it as a way to help us push forward. And so um, I don't think our phones are going away. And so the question is, how do we use them for good? Right, right. Well, and and in thinking about how people interact with each other, especially around um, issues that we could maybe oversimplify into politics, but really any large groups of people that are making decisions on behalf of large groups of people, the way that people interact over these technology mediums, um, like you said just a moment ago, I mean, it's so different than how people interact in person. And what's been such a challenge, and I've certainly seen this on the local government, and I wonder what it's been like on the higher education side, you know, over the last few years with so many, um, you know, I think that, uh, it, you know, it certainly kicked government to start doing things that, you know, private companies have been doing for 15 years mm-hmm. as far as connecting with each other. but. It's also very different, you know, in, in not just in thinking about, you know, having employees that are remote on some occasions and how that works or doesn't work, but also in thinking about how we engage broader communities and really hard conversations about issues that are really important to them. And it seems like there's almost a quantity quality uh, conflict in some of this and that opening these things up to more people through some of these tools, you're going to add a lot more people into the room, which has a certain set of values to it but also sometimes it seems like the conversation goes downhill. And especially since coming here, I've been learning a lot. It's, it's been an interesting learning experience in thinking about, especially on the election side of things, which is obviously such an important issue kind of around the country right now, and especially leading into next year, and how the election systems in New Hampshire and Vermont very different than New York, New Jersey, where I'm coming from. The scale here is much smaller. The governance is much more local and distributed and informal, and it's just been interesting sort of navigating the, this, the, the value proposition of, uh, you know, growing something in scale and adding more people in and how, when does that break down as far as the ability to manage it effectively and just, and I don't know, that was a lot of different stuff there, but curious if you have any reactions to, to that since being here. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll bring it back to the education context, which is, um, It was very clear, for example, during COVID that students as well as parents wanted a residential education for their student. Um, I think if one thing COVID made clear is how important those connections are and those informal connections. And what I worry about is when things are all online, we miss those informal Mm -hmm. connections. Um, We miss those opportunities to talk to each other outside a dorm room or outside the coffee shop. 
Uh, and that's so important, especially for young people going into the workforce to have those informal right, connections. Right. And um, I actually wrote a piece a couple of years ago arguing that, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, remote work will be a great gender equalizer. Because mm. um, I think there's good data that show that women do most of the, the cognitive labor at home, whether it's for kids or taking care of parents or others, on average, that's the data. It could be different for any one individual. Um, but what I really argued was I, don't, I worry that if... Um, women decide just to be the ones to not go back to the office and they're missing mm. all those opportunities for those experiences outside of, of those formal meetings. And, and that could be really devastating to the work we're trying to do around gender parity. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that would be difficult to tell until yes. some amount of time has passed. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I'm a big believer in in-person meetings. I think technology can be helpful, but the ability to be together and talk to each other and understand nuance, I think, is really important. I agree. And I think, um, you know, just uh, maybe it was last week, you know, we were having our meeting of uh, downtown Hanover, which had which has had really great participation from a couple of folks from Dartmouth, which which has been um, just wonderful. And and the meeting broke up, and one of my favorite things is, you know, when you're putting groups of people together, you know, and you're sort of convening, and then the meeting finishes, and you've got all these pods of people that are still hanging out and talking, and just, I love sort of stepping back and looking at that. You know, there's no agenda anymore, the meeting is over, you know, everybody's free to leave, but they can't, because they're still interested in talking about something. And uh, and we were all remarking, we were just kind of standing there, and there was a few different pods of people talking, and said, you can't do this over Zoom. You can't do this over Zoom. It's one of the reasons that I've worked really hard in, in my office and area to bring my senior leaders and to, mm. to all be in, in the same building and to work so that we can have those drop-ins. I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so in thinking about how to have um, uh, hard conversations about important topics, maybe we could talk a little bit about housing. Yes. <laughs> um, which is on, uh, you know, of course, everybody's mind here in the Upper Valley. And, you know, I'm sh I don't know if you had a similar experience, um, you know, but certainly I know when I was offered the job here and started looking at, like, I didn't really believe. People said the housing market's not great. I said, okay, well, I'm coming from, you know, New Jersey. It can't be any worse than, you know, that area or friends in California. Um, but, uh, but it is. Um, and and we've got some really great uh, progress going in the right direction. But what's, I guess, just, just kind of, What's been your initial reaction to people's feedback? I'm sure when you're asking people what issues are on their mind, this must come up a lot. And what have you been kind of hearing? Yeah, I mean, from talking to Dartmouth faculty, to staff, to students, to community members, I think the one common right. thing has been housing, housing, housing. Um, and for me, it was, from all the conversations I had, it was very clear early on that this is, this is not a, this is an academic issue at Dartmouth. Like, if we can't, hire the best faculty and right. staff and help them with housing, if we can't house our students in appropriate ways, if we're not contributing to the community in which we live, if we're, we're making it harder, that's a problem for an institution that strives for academic excellence. So for me, it became really um, clear very quickly that this is something that, that we had to tackle. And I want Dartmouth to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it also, this is one of the, the reasons, as, as I started hearing about some of the issues that really were not just Dartmouth, it's Dartmouth Upper Valley, Dartmouth Hanover, that um, you know I was so excited to have lunch with you last fall and to have our new, or last spring, and to have our 
uh, our new position, our mm-hmm. inaugural vice president for government and community relations, Emma Wolf, come in, whom mm-hmm. I think you've had on this yep, this yep. podcast, um, because I think we have to work on these things together. So Dartmouth is really going to do its part. To we've made a commitment to a thousand new beds in the next decade with breaking ground for for developments for faculty, students, staff, and and um, and graduate students in the next twenty four months, at least on first projects and. Our goal is to work with Hanover, to work with other entities in the area like DH, Dartmouth Health, um, to make sure that, that together we're, we're better than the sum of our parts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, one of the difficulties here is that it's so, a lot of the governance is so fragmented. There's not a county government that's in charge of creating regional plans and doing, and so it's really left up to a lot of towns and a lot of small towns. I mean, Hanover, we're lucky to have the kind of staff that we have even here for the town government, but a lot of the smaller towns in the area, I mean, outside of Lebanon and Hartford and a couple others, there's really not much. And so there's some organizations and there's our regional planning commissions. There's different entities and stakeholders that attempt to coordinate some of that, but it's all sort of making up for um, a very hyper-local governance structure, which um, the consequences of some of that seems to be, uh, seems to be clear. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we are, can all agree that we need more affordable housing mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that people are attracted to this area in a way that um, they have the ability to, to get appropriate housing. And um, for Dartmouth's part, I think, you know, we've made a renewed commitment to keep our undergraduates close to campus, to have them really within walking distance, and but to also think about how we make sure we have adequate housing for our faculty, our grad students, our staff, which maybe can be a little farther out from campus. Right. Yeah. And so what went into your thinking about that? I mean, I know, you know, it's certainly something I've heard from community members over time. uh, And, um, you know, and generally speaking, something I think that we're trying to look at as well is on the town side, the projects that we're looking at to be on water and sewer and to ideally, I mean, I think it'd be difficult to live in the Upper Valley and not have a car at all, unfortunately, um, but maybe allow people to live where they could have one car instead of two cars. I mean, that's still a huge step in the right direction. And so what, what informs some of your thinking about um, not only this sort of renewed commitment to, from Dartmouth on the housing front, but also more specifically about bringing some of that undergraduate housing closer to campus? Yeah, I mean, we talk to people, and, and you were very helpful in suggesting who we should be out talking to, community members, um, members of Dartmouth, but really members of the Upper Valley and Mm -hmm. understanding what the pain points were, how they thought about it, what would be more helpful. Um, And town government, you know, my goal is to have my team out there talking and understanding an issue. And we might not always agree and get Mm -hmm. to the exact Mm -hmm. same steps, but I think um, hearing perspectives that are different than your own, hearing other perspectives can be really helpful. Yeah. And so we've we've done a lot of talking and we'll continue right. to do more, um, but that really prompted some of our thinking about making sure that our undergraduate uh, housing was as close to campus as possible. We want our students to be able to walk and mm-hmm. be part of that community, at least at the undergrad level. Yeah, and that certainly seems like the feedback that I've heard from undergraduates as well is that they, they would love to be uh, able to do that. And you know, I think we have some work on the regional side, I mean, we've made a pretty good step recently with advanced transit, yeah. going two hours later in the evening and Saturday service. Um, and that was something that they had um, thought about doing for a while. And a couple of us, uh, you know, threw extra money in the budget for the year. And we had some conversations with Dartmouth staff as well. And we all kind of got together and figured out a way to make it happen. And 
um, I think most of us hope that that is uh, one more step along the way of continuing to, um, you know, create a transit network that really, I mean, I remember, you know, going to college in uh, the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts, um, and the five colleges there, I mean, it was connected by a 24-7 bus system that was just, and granted, you have UMass Amherst, which is just huge, and so a lot, a lot of economy of scale there, um, and four other colleges in the area, but in thinking about the ease of getting around here, especially in the winter, I mean, I don't know how people ride bikes around in the snow, I've seen them do it. (laughs) I don't really plan on doing it myself, I don't think, but it is tough because in the summer, I mean, it feels great. You can walk around and, you know, you know, take your bike from here to here, but, you know, it starts getting below zero and those options really aren't on the table. And so what's there instead? Yeah, I'm so happy about our expanded transit and obviously yeah. there's still more work to do. And I think it's another place where Dartmouth and, and the town of Hanover and, and, and the Upper Valley more broadly can partner. Hmm. And so what does that mean for, so we're thinking about having, uh, you know, uh, bringing undergraduates closer to campus, increasing the number of beds there, you know, that's all really exciting because obviously that's going to provide a great experience for the students, but also from a larger housing stock sort of um, view, you know, if students are moving out of, you know, single family homes right now that are kind of converted and some of these, I'm sure you've heard this feedback as well. And part of the reason, you know, we created this rental housing inspection program is some of that housing is really substandard. And I know we would all feel a lot more comfortable on the town side, on the code enforcement side, if they were in, you know, Dartmouth built and owned and operated housing. That's, that's great. Um, And we've just heard so many kind of horror stories there, but that students moving out of those housing into housing that's sort of more geared right for them opens up some of those housing units for other folks to move into. And it really could make a big difference um, in the area. Yeah, I mean, our hope is to, again, to take some pressure off the system and, right. and be a contributor to solving this housing crisis rather than a contributor to the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> and what is that, what is that, um, where does that leave things looking at um, the, I don't know, the, the golf course, the North End projects, the, the Lime Road, the Lime Road yeah. projects, yeah. Where, where does that leave um, some of the initiatives? I know there was a couple different iterations of plans there where's that at right now yeah our our plan is to focus that on graduate and professional student housing and the graduate and professional students we think can be a little farther out and oftentimes want to be right Um, and we're looking at the plans for that right now to help to help make that a reality that's great well I, i think these are all really exciting um exciting changes and you know part of what we're trying to do as well is you know we've heard a lot um, as far as retaining people in the area, and, I, and I'm curious too. I mean, a lot of that I imagine um, is focused on student housing and certainly the undergraduate housing, you know, near campuses. But from a staff and faculty standpoint, I mean, you, you all are one of the larger employers in the state, um, and between the college and the medical center, obviously there's a tremendous pressure on the housing market here. We've also, you know, there's there's odd gaps in the types of housing available and you know we've been using the sort of you know missing middle phrase that has become a little more common in the last couple years that you can maybe find a studio apartment available it may not be cheap but you may be able to find that you may also be able to find you know a five six seven eight hundred thousand dollar house but there's not a whole lot in between and that's part of what we're looking at trying to build out what have you heard from the staff and faculty side or people you know, interested in, um, you know, in something that's not an apartment that they can sort of settle in more or 
what's the sense there? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your missing middle diagnosis, um, although my team will know more than I have, but I, I had dinner with about 45 new faculty a couple of weeks ago at my house, and it was something they talked about, right? Mm. That it was these, um, it was more than a studio apartment, but less than an, uh, a four or five bedroom home, right. especially for younger junior faculty who are just thinking about getting settled, maybe starting a family. Um, and so we agree that we have to be thinking about each kind of population and, and what the housing means to them. And also, I mean, faculty and staff often want to live in, in neighborhoods that hmm. where there's other faculty and staff right. or, you know, connect folks connected to Dartmouth or Dartmouth Health. And so thinking really systematically about what that looks like. Hmm. Um, well, I think we have some uh, exciting times ahead, and I think for a lot of the stakeholders in the Upper Valley, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, but, you know, there's going to be plenty of things that we have a different approach to or different ideas about where to go, but a lot of the high-level goals among a lot of the stakeholders in the region seem aligned, especially around housing issues, child care access issues, transportation issues, and even though we may have slightly different ideas about solutions or approaches you know, having that much, I mean, we just did a goal setting workshop with, with our select board recently and the alignment between our planning board and select board and the staff as far as, I mean, it's just really nice. You know, I've done some of those before where you do, you know, a board retreat and you come out and you've got, you know, nine different priorities from nine different people. And it's really hard to reconcile all of that. But a lot of folks here really share a lot of the same goals. Um, and I think same between the medical center and the college and the town and Hypertherm and King Arthur Bakery and the co-op, like all of us have similar, not the same needs. And, um, and hopefully, uh, I don't know, I just think there's a lot of good opportunity for us all to work together. Yeah, I agree. And I think we have more commonalities and, and common views than different views. Yeah. And so I think we have to push on those. Yeah, agreed. Now, beyond Hanover, um, I know that you have also been talking about a pretty kind of ambitious agenda for the college. You want to share a little bit about some of the things that may be interesting and may, de and I'm sure will definitely have an impact on Hanover, but perhaps less so than undergraduate housing. Yes. Um, so what are some of those kind of big picture goals that you have? Right yeah. Now? So at my inauguration in, in um, September, I talked really about how I think Dartmouth is a place of innovation and impact. Our size, our scale, the fact that we have a focus on undergrads combined with a uh, world-class research institution with a medical school and a business school and engineering and graduate programs, I think we can be in this, take the best to start up culture and be in this constant mm. uh, iteration of going from idea to impact. And we've seen this in so many ways on the Dartmouth campus. So at the medical school, uh, one of our faculty members several years ago discovered how to stabilize the spike protein. Our proteins are floppy and this faculty member discovered how to stabilize it in a way that the mRNA vaccine plugged into it for COVID. Mm. Um, and Dartmouth is one of the um, leading contributors to the, the, the COVID vaccines. Um, so this is going from idea to impact. We've seen this so many times in our history, um, you know, developing basic as a, as a computer language, some of the work that we've done in terms of bringing great works of art, to, um, whether it's musicals or others, to the community I, and um, thinking about climate change in many different ways. We have, we have this constant push for ideas to something that's going to make the world a better place. Um, and so 
I, I want to build on that. I want this to be a place where our students, our faculty, our staff, even our community can come in to think about how we take ideas to have an impact on the world, to positively affect lives touched. One of our faculty members, for example, developed the mechanism for the phone uh, camera, which has been so important mm. in um, capturing issues around police brutality or others that have had an impact. I mean, so many ways in which we've had this social impact in, in what we've done um, and, and helping to make sure that we're supporting our, our law enforcement and others in the best way. Um, and so the question is, how do we get there? How do we do this? And um, we're doing it in many different ways. We're building accelerators on campus where people can take their ideas to people who will fund it, um, connecting to our alums. But what I really argued is that we have to have some baseline conditions to do that. First, we have to think about health and wellness. Mm -hmm. You can't, you have to have a healthy community. Second, we have to be a place where we push on each other with difficult dialogue, um, where we can be brave in our conversations, where we can bring in points of view that others don't di disagree with. Um, I want to be clear that this doesn't mean saying whatever you want whenever you want. We, um, you know, all speech is not free speech, mm -hmm. um, but we have to create environments where our community can come together and, and have opposing views and, and talk to each other in civil forms, not with threats, not yelling, not um, merely shouting across a void, but actually conversations. So uh, mental health, brave spaces. And then an, a third that I talked a lot about is connecting Dartmouth for life. So we have so many alums who come back to the area. Uh, Dartmouth is not just a four-year institution. I have never seen a more dedicated alumni body. So being clear about how we bring them in um, and how we support those alumni. And then finally, um, again, another ingredient to have this innovative ecosystem, making sure that we are a sustainable campus, that we mm -hmm. um, are, are really paying attention to our carbon footprint um, and that we're giving that, that the research that we do on climate and energy away to the world. Um, so I'm excited to tackle all those as really baseline conditions to being this campus that's innovative, that goes from discovery to impact really quickly. Yeah, that's great. And I know the, on a number of those fronts of sustainability, I mean, there's so much work that is being done now. I mean, the, the campus is such a big apparatus to move over. Um, and uh, I think that's the kind of thing where, you know, the the college, the campus community, the community at large, the upper, like everybody's so on board yeah. moving in that direction. And I know we're working very closely with the town of Hanover mm -hmm. and others as, as we think about what it means to um, really be a, a a carbon zero campus and we know that will take time uh, we don't want to do that just through offsets or other things that we don't think across the country or the world we want to contribute to what we're doing in new england um, we want to contribute to what we're doing in the upper valley and we want to think about how we do things differently on campus yeah that makes sense and i think that um that's certainly the right uh this i'm sure you have students that are coming in that are bringing innovative ideas into the classroom in some of these subject areas and and it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think the environment that that you all can create to provide that the, the culture of innovation and ingenuity, which I think the Upper Valley is, I mean, as I've been learning more about the region here and you see, I mean, we have like Hypertherm, I think is a great example. I mean, here is this, you know, employee owned, like super high tech specialized company that I didn't really know much about before coming here, but then seeing what they do. And I feel like there's a number of things like that in the Upper Valley that you wouldn't really 
um, you wouldn't really expect necessarily um, being a couple hours outside of a major city, but we do have that here. Yeah, I mean, we've been, I think that's a great example, and we have so many examples of, of that, mm-hmm. where our faculty are creating companies, where our students right. are, and um, I do think something that's so special is that our alums stay connected, and so many of our alums fund students and mm-hmm. faculty and other alums in some of these ventures, and I think we should be doing more and more. Well, and it's great. I mean, there, and there's so many, there's a few alum in the area, and it's kind of amazing um, just thinking about, I, I've got to imagine there's some metrics that somebody's collected out there, but looking at, you know, colleges and universities and the number of alum that stay in given areas around, and I've, I've got, I feel like this area has probably got a very high ratio of that. Yeah, that, that's, I don't know if I have that metric off the top of my head, but um, I know that so many of our alums contribute, which to Dartmouth, which is, is a real great metric right. of, of their support and success. And we um, really score highly on metrics of alums funding other alums for companies that's and helping great. start business. And I think that's exactly what we should be doing. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Talk about creating community. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, what else, since you've been up here, um, what else have you sort of found about the Upper Valley? I mean, we're now just getting into the fun season, if you like, <laughs> winter sports. Um, what's it been like so far? Have you gotten to kind of get out and explore much? Uh, yeah. yeah, what's it? Well, I have a, a daughter at the middle school, at Hanover Middle mm-hmm. School, at Richmond Middle School, so um, I'm doing a lot of driving you know, a, a middle schooler around to different right. activities. She's riding and playing tennis and mm. making great friends. And so we're exploring a lot together. And um, it's, you know, I'm excited for winter. I, I was a ski racer in high school, so, and I haven't been on skis in a long time, so I'm going to get back on. Oh, so you're getting ready, mentally I'm, preparing? I'm, I'm mentally preparing <laughs> to get back on. Um, and I've just, I've loved being able to run. And, and I'm Pine Park is a favorite of mine. And um, just being able to get out. It's beautiful around there, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, And that's great. So I was a big tennis player when I was younger and recently have got back into it. Um, But I'll I'll say I was playing at at Boss maybe a month or two ago, and the Dartmouth team was playing on the courts next over. And, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself getting back (laughs) into it. And then I'm watching them saying, Okay, <laughs> this is a huge difference. I mean, yes. they're just—it's just incredible. And I don't think I was ever quite that good. I mean, I, I went to a college that didn't have any uh, varsity sports at all. Um, but uh, yeah, just I—I I, I have mixed feelings about feeling good and feeling bad from that and yeah. watching that. But it was—it was—it was pretty incredible. Yeah, our athletes are great, and I've loved being out at, at games. Um, you know, I was out there on Friday. We had a a close call, but we beat Princeton in football. And, okay, nice. Um, I love being able to go to all the different games and, and see our students who are so dedicated to being students first, but also mm. Division One Ivy League athletes. And um, yeah, I try and judge my tennis. I'm, I actually sometimes get mm. jump in a lesson with my daughter and I don't judge it based on her because she can beat me now. Right. Um, but just based on my own improvement, I find that's mentally healthier. <laughs> mm. Now, was there a line, so did you used to play tennis with your daughter where you kind of had the upper hand and then at some point you noticed that oh, changing? Yeah. It's just this year, she's, okay. it's, it's changed. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So no number of lessons on your There's part, nothing. you're going to be able to catch I, up? I'm, it's over. I'm trying to hang on so she'll even walk on the court with right. me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, definitely worth preserving that. And I know my, I was kind of raised in a family of tennis players and we're all at very different levels and uh, and but it's really fun for us to go out and do that together. 
Yeah, and I mean, I'm a big believer in athletics and the power of athletics to build character and to help you understand how to lose and what teamwork mm. means. And um, and so it's fun to, to see, you know, her under, figure out and understand that you can get better at things and that you see the outcomes of your hard work. And, right. Yeah. Now, that's an area that I think a lot of people and a lot of parents struggle with, which is trying to balance that with their kids is letting them fail, but also not wanting to fail too much. And and it was interesting seeing some, you know, before directly before I came up here, I was working at a um, at a Y camp in New Jersey and we were doing outdoor education, a lot of team building with youth groups. And it was a really, really fascinating. I mean, it was a wonderful experience because. My sister and I both went to the camp when we were kids. So it was, and some of the people still work there from when I was younger. And then, uh, so that was kind of fun. But watching how the different teachers and parents interact, watching the different other uh, program staff, you know, some who just were had such fine tuned skills about this balance. And with your cognitive psychology, cognitive science background, I mean, how do you think about that? You know, I think a lot of people struggle with finding that. You've done some of the research already. Yeah. How do you balance that? And how do you allow someone to fail and to learn in, in the right environment? Yeah, I mean, it's hard as a parent. I think we want to protect our kids. But I'm a big believer that having some struggle and failure and being uncomfortable is a good thing. It's how you learn. I mean, our, we know our brain cells um, grow and connect when we have those uncomfortable environments. And if you just take the same basketball shot over and over a three-foot shot right. you'll be great at that shot but nothing else right that so may how do you mistake I made. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you create those environments where you can be a little bit uncomfortable hmm. um and so i you know i struggle with that all the time even as a parent um but you know i go back to to the fact that you know when you're successful it's not just because you're endowed with something great you worked right. at it and when you fail it's the same thing you have to figure out how to work in a different way right right yeah, now, all right, so I'm going to throw something out here that's a rabbit hole, but we don't have to go down related to this. And people that listen to the podcast will, at this point, know that I'm a pretty big Star Trek fan, because um, <laughs> I think there's just fascinating lessons, especially in The Next Generation, which I think is the best series of all of them, um, just about all of the, some of the kind of stuff that we're um, talking about here. And one of the really interesting things that um, I've only heard a few people sort of jump into, but a couple different podcasts I follow... I've talked about it, which is, you know, the basic premise in all, I think all of the series is that they're basically living in a post-scarcity world, right? There are people have jobs and they're in this sort of paramilitary slash science organization, but there's no paychecks, you know, everything you have, you know, things that can, you hit a button and can create whatever you need. And so there's no currency scarcity, there's no employment scarcity, there's no, um, you know, food or physical safety scarcity anymore. And I think in some kind of like sci-fi circles, people look at that and say, well, that sounds great. That's, of course, the direction we want to head in. But some, of, some have offered the sort of thoughts that in a really technical sense, how do you raise a child in a post-scarcity society where all of your needs are basically met? Yeah. And that that is actually, thinking about that as sort of this utopian vision is sort of nice. But when you start digging a few layers down, if people are growing up and they have not had to face any adversity at all, and obviously there's way too many people who face way too much adversity, right. but the idea of of the goal being the other side of that, which you could maybe argue that the way that we produce entertainment content and other things in the U.S. and the Western world right now is really geared at, you know, kind of comfort and convenience. And so 
throwing that out there, I don't know if you have any thoughts or reactions, um, just reflecting on how character is built and how people learn how to fail and how to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that finding those situations where even our kids are uncomfortable or we're pushing them or they're learning to push themselves is so important um, because it sets you up its practice for what's going to happen in the future. I guess if we lived in, in some sort right. of utopia where that didn't happen, I might change what I think. Um, but I do believe, you know, our, for example, our Dartmouth students come and they've been very successful as, as high school students and mm. doing what they need to do to get into a place like Dartmouth. And sometimes I worry that they um, are not as open to taking classes where they might not do as well mm. or don't have the background. And that risk is really important. It opens up your mind. It helps you learn and think in new ways. That's also about finding friends and talking to people that, mm -hmm. who have very different opinions than you that maybe think the polar opposite of you. Right. That is when your ideas become better. When you, your ideas don't, in my mind, don't become better when you just talk to people that agree with you. Your ideas become better when you talk to people that critique it, that require you to articulate it in a different way. Right. Now, it doesn't mean you have to change your mind, right, right. but but the ability to articulate it and, and try and convince someone or have a dialogue or understand their perspective, I think, you know, that's inherently uncomfortable. We don't all, we don't necessarily want to do it. And um, when we don't do it, we don't learn as much. And I actually have data that speaks to this. I have a paper I published with a postdoc. We look at uh, math anxiety, so anxiety mm. people have around math. Mm -hmm. um, Familiar. And <laughs> in the U.S., especially in Western countries, it turns out that um, people have lots of math anxiety, and it's socially acceptable. Like, you don't right. brag about not being a right. reading person. Right. Um, and what happens is it's not just that if you're anxious about math, you're bad at it. We've, we've shown that there's something about the anxiety itself, and one thing mm. that we've shown is that when you're anxious about math, you tend not to do math that's difficult like you just try and stay away from it right. because it's not fun but that's how you get better and so we've done work where we've actually looked at students in AP calculus in high school and we've looked at them getting ready for the AP test the calculus test which is an important test at the end of your high school we show that when kids are more anxious about math the way they study is different they tend not to do practice problems they just read the book because practice problems make you feel uncomfortable right. it's harder right it might feel bad if you get yeah. them wrong and it's just not fun right and, and then you don't do as well and so we it's very it's a normal human reaction to want to stay away from things that make us uncomfortable but the problem is is that i don't think it helps us learn and grow the way we we could and how do you how do you talk about that on campus i mean how you know, so students are got their course catalogs that they're signing up for they're looking at different classes how do you change the culture and i'm sure there's i'm sure there's plenty of students who jump right into the challenges yes. too yes. um but for for those that uh that aren't quite there and how do you how do you identify them and how do you guide and support yeah. in this way I, I think our faculty are really great at that um and of course we are a liberal arts college we want students to be support to explore across the arts and sciences mm -hmm. so um, they have some requirements they have to take right. whether or not you know they're interested in just science or just literature um but i think it's talking about it and i think also it's as leaders and faculty and staff and community members talking about our failures. I don't think we spend enough time talking about mm. when we failed because everyone fails right. and normalizing it. And this is, it's not failing a class, but maybe you don't have to go in knowing everything or uh, it's okay to take a class that you didn't think that you might want to take. Um, you know, I've, I've had these experiences. I talk about them a lot um, and I think we all have to. Agreed. And especially in the politics and government world, I mean, failure is just... It's part of it. Yeah, it is, but it's, I mean, 
you ha- there's there's no it's so difficult to create the conditions where people can be that open yes. about it and there's some really complicated tensions there um, that I don't think anybody has really quite figured out but yeah it's so it's so important yeah I mean I it's mistakes are how you learn it's mm. part of how you learn and get better at, at what you're doing and I want this to be a place where our students have that opportunity to not get everything right and and to learn from it. Hmm. Um, well, that all sounds really great. And um, curious if there's anything else that you wanted to share with folks that we didn't um, get to cover. Well, first, thanks for having me. Sure. And, um, I'm really excited to work with you yeah. and the the town. I think you know Dartmouth. It's in just an imperative that we are of this community uh, not just in it and I think that carries a responsibility to to think about and and be working together on all the sorts of issues that will make our community better whether it's child care housing um, bringing together a community that cares about mental health and um, supporting each other and I'm excited to work with you Alex and and others on, on those goals yeah and i'll say the same thing i really appreciate the perspective that you bring to the table with all of these issues and um and a lot of the other staff that have gotten i mean we we have some a lot of our departments work really well together and have for a long time i think there's a higher level alignment that's coming on board more and more and more and um that's been really just encouraging to see so i think we have a lot of exciting um a lot of exciting stuff in the future here me too and thank you for all the work you're doing yeah and same to you and uh welcome again to the to the upper valley in hanover and thank you yeah thank you hey everyone and thanks for checking out this special spotlight episode of hanover happenings if you'd like to find all of the episodes of our hanover happenings podcast and prior updates you can do so at hanoverhappenings.com or on wherever you listen to podcasts If you'd like more information about other things happening in town, such as monthly reports, agendas, minutes, events, videos, and more, you can do so at HanoverNH.org. Thanks again for engaging with what's happening in your community.